Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Coaches Road podcast. Today, we are joined by Professor Charles Hillman from Northeastern University. The first time I came across um, the research from Professor Charles Hillman was at the Kisa Kalio sem seminar when he was presenting about physical activity and brain health. And I still remember his presentation very vividly. And it was a really good opportunity to get him in the show and to speak a little bit more about his area of expertise today. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to talk to Charles and just kind of explore the impact of physical activity on brain health. And I think, you know, you were lucky enough to see him at Kiss Collio, but it, it, this episode with him today establishes a good kind of foundation of knowledge in the, in the subject. And he, he really puts it in understandable terms and, and makes it really easy to, to take that information and use in your own life and then also in your, in your coaching. And I think that's something that, I really took away from the conversation today is it's not just about the, you know, brain health of individuals and everything like that. It's about kind of establishing good brain development and everything like that through sports. And it adds that another kind of reason to, to get people active and get people engaged in moving and, and physical activity. And, you know, looking back at the conversation we had with Dean three hours a while ago, active participation it all kind of just adds a deeper reason to to that and uh yeah it was a really interesting conversation definitely a more technical one but very easy to understand so i really hope everyone enjoys and without further ado let's kick it over to professor hillman So now we'd like to welcome on Professor Charles Hillman from Northeastern University, uh, located in Boston, Massachusetts. Professor Hillman, thanks for joining us today. And how's everything going in Massachusetts? Thanks for having me, uh, Derek and Rick. Uh, all's well here, you know, wintertime in Boston. Yeah, only what I hear from the um, city, Boston itself. It's a beautiful city. And you guys, I know you have the, the Boston Marathon and during the summer that with the vaccination process will speed up a little bit and that at some point we can we can pursue certain activities um at some point again but now this is again as we said several times it's just really good that we have the opportunity to be productive during the pandemic and that we can speak to people and today we are very excited that we have the opportunity to speak to you i i personally got in touch with you or we didn't speak at this point but i saw you the first time at the kisa Kalio seminar um, two years uh, in 2019, it was when I'm when I'm right, and that was you. You gave us a, you gave their presentation about physical about brain brain health and physical health, how how it's connected with each other. And but before we dive into that, um, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and describe a bit what you study and maybe also why why you're studying it? Sure. Well, I'm I'm Chuck Kilman. I'm a professor in uh, psychology as well as in uh, the Bouvet College of Health Sciences, uh, in particular in the Department of Physical Therapy, Movement and Rehabilitation Science. Uh, those two appointments really reflect what I do. I'm, uh, I'm an interdisciplinary scientist who's interested in the effects of health behaviors like physical activity, uh, fitness, uh, as well as, as body composition, adiposity, obesity, um, and its relationship to brain and cognition. Uh, while I studied across the lifespan, I have particular interest in, in childhood brain and cognition. Um, 
And the goal is to take it all the way from the laboratory to the classroom. Um, currently, I, I'm uh, the Associate Director for the Center of Cognitive and Brain Health at Northeastern. It's a center that I uh, developed when I moved there with my colleague, uh, Art Kramer. Uh, we were we moved from Illinois, University of Illinois to uh, Northeastern together. And um, you know, I'm back home in Boston uh, conducting clinical human subjects research. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting the the things that I've heard about your work so far, and I'm really interested in diving more into that today. But before we get um, too deep into the conversation, how did you get interested in this this topic of kind of brain health, cognition, and kind of just everything around it? Yeah, it's interesting. It wasn't uh, it wasn't an overnight decision. Um, you know, I, I did my master's research at the University of Florida in uh, the Center for Emotion, it's the Center for Study in Emotion and Attention. And we were basically what's now sort of uh, affective neuroscience. We, it was a, a psychophysiology laboratory studied normal and clinical uh, affect and emotion. Um, and I, uh, funny enough, I, um, I was working with, uh, I was working in that laboratory and I, I got a master's degree in sports psychology, uh, and and unfortunately, uh, one of my mentors from that time, uh, Bob Singer, who was a department chair in, in sports psychology, which was called Exercise Sports Sciences back then, uh, passed away just a year ago. Um, but he got me really interested in this notion of sports psychology, and you know, through the research I was doing in, in the laboratory, I wedded him, and uh, my master's thesis was actually on the uh, psychophysiology of sports fans. And, and basically I studied emotional reactivity of sports fans when their team won and lost and looked at physiological behavior. But over time, I became really interested more in health and health behaviors and moved to a laboratory at, uh, at um, University of Maryland and studied under a guy named Brad Hatfield who studied the psychophysiology of, of uh, elite athletes and had a a minor interest, more minor interest, which now is his larger interest in the idea of studying uh, cognitive aging. So how exercise influences the aging brain. And, and that was really the area I developed uh, with him while I was a doctoral student. Um, and, I, and then I took a job at the University of Illinois and you know that was my area of study. Um, and then a couple of years into it, I sort of stopped studying or slowed down, I should say, my, my study of aging and started studying uh, children. And that's where I am now, I guess, 21 years into my career. Would you say, um, that, would you say that your master's is in, in any way connected to, to your work, um, what you're doing now, or has it set you up in a way to propel you for your career where you're currently? Yeah, that's an interesting question, uh, Rick. Um, in terms of content, I would say, not exactly. It was a stepping stone area. But in terms of measurements and, you know, uh, scientific method, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I learned from really some of the best people in their disciplines. I mean, Peter Lang, who directed the Center for Cognitive and Brain, oh, sorry, who directed the Center for the Study of Emotion and Attention, along with Margaret Bradley and, and Bruce Cuthbert, are some of the biggest names in emotion in the last, you know, 50 years. Um, and they ran a very rigorous laboratory and they introduced me to 
to the, the field of psychophysiology, which, you know, it falls under psychobiology and really is today what most people would consider to be neuroscience uh, or cognitive neuroscience or affective neuroscience. And so while the topic on sports fans doesn't really apply to what I do, and I haven't really thought about that in 25 years or so, um, you know, the lessons learned along the way absolutely set me up for where I am now clear stepping stones. Yeah, I think it's always really interesting for us to hear because we, we talk to a lot of um, kind of coaches and and experts in, in kind of health and, and all these different fields. And it's always interesting to see how their past studies kind of impact their current work now. And um, But it Kind of diving into the the topic for today, we wanted to get you on to to talk about this connection between physical activity and and brain health. But before we dive into the meat of that, can you kind of set the scene a little bit and describe some of the the key terms around that work, um, such as brain structure, brain function, and then cognition as well? Yeah, sure thing, Dirk. Um, you know, let me go back and just say one thing from the last question, which is simply that I. Uh, you know, the other thing that I really value in my career is that there's a lot of people in my field who are about to talk about my field that come out of psychology and neuroscience proper, right? Not, they don't have the human movement science background, that kinesiology background. And I, I feel uh, that that was very valuable to me. And so in my education at Florida and at Maryland, I really, you know, understood human movement at a level that I think many in my field didn't have that luxury. Um, having said that, you know, um, <clears throat> I also had the opportunity to learn neuroscience and psychology along the way. Um, and so I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, master of none. And in that regard, um, I, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of learning no matter what you do, right? Uh, or how you go about it, you're, you're just constantly learning. And so, so to that end, uh, you know, to, to sort of define a few terms, you know, brain structure is exactly what it sounds like. We're talking about the architecture of the brain, right? The individual uh, regions of the brain, both uh, on the cortical level, right? The, the cerebral cortex, the, the exterior surface of the brain um, um, and, and the subcortical, level, right? The structures underneath, you know, that, that uh, cerebral cortex. And I think it's important to point out a, a couple things in structure. Um, there's both gray and white matter, right? Gray matter is your neuronal bodies, your cell bodies, and white matter is the myelin sheaths that cover the axons that assist in communication between neurons. Um, our work has shown benefits to both of those types of, of uh, structures, both gray and white matter. Um, but also, I think more and more, the field of neuroscience in general, of cognitive neuroscience in general, um, is less focused on a, a particular region, right? Prefrontal cortex or hippocampus or, or what have you. And it's, it's growing much more interested in networks, right? And so neural networks uh, or, or the, you know, the, the networks that combine multiple brain regions to serve or, or to underlie, to subserve or underlie um, various operations, be it cognitive or affective or, or what have you. Um, Brain function is, is also studied a couple of different ways. Um, you know, I, I'm 
my work is probably most known for studying the neuroelectric system using EEG. So we're looking at electrical activity of the different neurons in the brain. Uh, the EEG is, is an outstanding imaging tool when it comes to uh, temporal aspects of brain functions. So how, you know, when in time things happen. Uh, it can measure functions on the order of a millisecond. Um, other functions, uh, for instance, the MRI, we measure blood flow, the, he the hemodynamic system. And in that case, uh, you know, really what we're able to understand is, is changes in blood flow that carry oxygen and other nutrients to brain. Um, and in that case, we're, we're focused very much on, um, you know, we're focused on how things, how, you know, changes in blood flow in, in different regions of the brain or different networks of the brain. Um, those are the main ones I study, but certainly you can get at brain function using PET and MEG and all kinds of other imaging tools as well. Um, cognition is a, is a complex term. I mean, <clears throat> you know, co cognition wise, we're, we're focused on, you know, different operations that the brain performs uh, from sensation to perception to higher order thinking um, that, that we use in everyday life. And so sensation obviously is, you know, seeking, you know, stimuli in your, in your environment that uh, allows you to, uh, you know, interact within your environment. Um, you know, you sense light and sound and all those things in a normal, healthy brain. Um, perception is, is understanding or making sense of, that, of those sensations. Um, but higher order thinking really allows us to direct our attention, direct our, you know, recall our memories and whatnot to guide and shape our behavior. It's the regulatory aspect of what we do. And so in that regard, I'm most focused on executive functions and, and executive functions are goal-directed, uh, self-regulated behaviors. Um, they, they're in, they entail the, um, the intentional component of environmental interaction. And what I mean by that is that we're not uh, operating, you know, we're not acting reflexively, we're acting out of will, right? Um, and, you know, and we, we most generally think about executive functions along three different categories of, of cognitions. Uh, inhibition, which is our ability to ignore distraction and stay focused. Uh, our ability to override a dominant response in favor of a less well-learned response. So for example, in inhibition, you know, a kid might have to inhibit or gate out uh, noisy kids in the classroom and focus on the teacher's lesson. Um, <clears throat> in, you know, uh, a second area is working memory. This is our ability to hold information in our mind uh, and manipulate it. Uh, this is also, you know, if, you were to, if we were to use a school example, uh, this is what you do when you carry the remainder in long division or when you read a paragraph, after a member of the paragraph in order to answer questions about that paragraph. Um, and then lastly is cognitive flexibility. Most commonly people refer to cognitive flexibility or mental flexibility as, um, as tasks, uh, sorry, as like uh, multitasking, right? This, and, but you know, scientifically or in a laboratory, what we're talking about is attending to one, uh, one task, which has a series of rule sets that you hold in working memory and use to guide that behavior and then inhibit that, uh, that first uh, uh, task 
execute a second task where we attend to it, uh, which brings with it a separate rule set that we bring down from our working memory to guide our behavior. And then we switch flexibly back and forth as needed. We do this all day long. Um, we do this when we drive and, and talk on the phone or drive and text or, you know, or when you're driving and you're just changing your radio station. Um, you do this right now when you go between listening and talking. You, know, you have to listen to what I say. You have to hold it in your memory to then think about what, it, what was said and then ask the next question, right? Um, the, the simple truth, though, is that we don't, we don't multitask as well as we like to think. If we did, driving and texting would be legal, right? But it's not. And it's not because you don't drive as well when you're texting and you don't text as well when you're driving, right? So we do things better um, by themselves as opposed to uh, in a multi-flexible, multitasking fashion. I think that answers your, your basic questions, but I certainly can get more into it if you like. Yeah, I, I just had a quick follow-up there. I'm, um, I'm wondering if I, if I can try to put this in, in kind of a sports analogy and, and, and get your feedback on it really quick. But I'm, and I'm sorry if I'm going to make this too simple, but it, it kind of sounds like um, an executive function might be when, you know, maybe I'm carrying the puck into the zone and, and this defenseman's about to, to step up to try to hit me or take the puck away or whatever. And now I'm kind of having to have the cognitive flexibility to switch between, you know, where are my teammates? Where is this guy coming at me? Where is the puck still on my stick? Forehand, backhand, all of those different things. And that's where that cognitive flexibility would come in. Um, is that kind of on the right track in terms of sports or am I kind of off here? No, it, it is on the right track. I would say, you know, you simplified it a little bit because in the sense that, you know, when you're entering the zone as the forward with a puck on your stick, um, you know, you're also attending, you know, to where, where that defenseman is, knowing that the defenseman is going to try and stop you at the blue line, right? They don't want to let you in their zone. Um, but you're inhibiting other aspects, maybe players who don't matter at the moment or the referee. So, you're, you know, there's inhibition going on. You're, you know, you're holding items and working memory. You're entering the zone, hopefully with some knowledge of where your teammates are, having practiced with them and, you know, hoping that they're where you think they're going to be based on your memory. And then you're flexibly, you know, performing multitasking operations between, you know, engaging the defenseman, figuring out what it is you're going to do with that puck on your stick. You're going to try and drag and go around them. You're going to look to make a pass. Where are you going to go after that pass? And so you're, you're constantly shifting your attention between, your own set and the set of others, right? And, and we know as, as athletes and as coaches and, and as, uh, you know, as kinesiology scholars that, that better athletes are operating externally focused much more than they're operating internally focused in the moment, right? Yeah, there's a lot of research um, in that area at the moment. Very popular book right there now is um, Nick Winkleman. Um, the language of coaching who speaks about also about that long-term memory versus short-term memory about what you said also right now working memory and and as you said as well that focusing on external things instead of internal things and how do we actually cue our athletes but this is um, this is a little bit different conversation and you just in your in your previous answer you, you mentioned um, something something important you mentioned that <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned brain health and overall that how do we actually develop a healthy brain if we maybe can like really start from the beginning to unsure like 
lifelong brain health? Yeah, Rick, that's a good question. Um, you know, brain health is an interesting term. It's a term we use a lot in my laboratory. I use a lot in my writing. Um, and I hope that my that the reviewers in my work don't say, what is brain health? Please define it, because then I'm forced to kind of go back to structures and functions. So, you know, <clears throat> if I were to if I were to consider what is the healthiest moment, you know, to, to use as sort of like a baseline for brain health, it's probably your young adult years, right? So somewhere between the age of 20 and 30. Um, prior to 20, uh, your brain continue, is developing, right? Certain areas like your visual cortex develop very, very quickly and are, are, you know, are fairly mature within the first year of life. Um, other areas like your prefrontal cortex have much more protracted development, right? And if you think about that, you know, the visual cortex, you know, it takes in, it senses visual information and it brings it to brain where it's then utilized in various networks and in incorporated into perception and action and those sorts of things. The prefrontal cortex is a much richer um, area of the brain with a lot more, it's not so specialized, right? It's not a sensory organ, a sensory portion of the brain. It's a, it's a, um, you know, sort of a, a, an associative or complex or, you know, area of the brain where it's integrating information, it's involved in, in regulation and monitoring and, and decision-making and all those sorts of things. And so that region of the brain um, doesn't fully develop until the age of 20-ish, about, you know, two decades in. And, and, you know, if you look at tasks that tap the prefrontal cortex, like executive function, you can see that that executive function continues to improve over the first two decades of life. And so in our 20s, we're, that's really where our brains are at their peak performance, right? To use a sports term, They're, it's performing at its best. Um, and then what happens is by the time you hit 30, your prefrontal cortex is already starting to decay. And so by the time you're 60, you have significant decay in your prefrontal cortex on average, on the average person, right? Now your visual cortex has decayed by less than 1% by the age of 60. So it, it matures pretty quick and it holds for a very long period of time. That prefrontal cortex kind of zooms up, has a short window of, of great performance and then drops off. I mean, just like a, you know an athlete, like you're, you're, if you think of a kid who's going through uh, athletics, they're getting better and better and better every year, assuming they're practicing and doing the right things, right? Spending their time wisely. They have that sort of peak window and then they begin to decay. No matter what it is they do, they will never be as good as they were physically anyway at, at their peak. And so, and so, you know, if we talk about brain health, you know, we, what we're really doing is we're, we're comparing people relative, either relative to a, a group who's in their twenties that are theoretically operating at their peak, or we're comparing individuals over time. And so when we talk about children, what we're looking at is, you know, how does their executive function uh, change? Has their brain, you know, their, their brain, either structures or functions change uh, throughout the course of development? Um, how does the, you know, how those changes compare to young adult structure or function based on some variable, be it fitness or an inter, uh, a physical activity intervention? Um, then we look at older adults, we look at how is their brain health relative to young adults or relative to other 
you know, older adults that are, you know, either exercising or not, right? And so our, our term health is really sort of a relative term, if that makes sense. Let, let me just shift and say one more thing. If we look at the animal work, and we might be getting to this down the road, if, and I'm, I apologize if I jump into this uh, early, but if we look at animal studies, there's a, not, you know, no pun intended here, but there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. I mean, obviously I study exercise and, I, and I'm looking, I'm really interested in how exercise promotes better brain health um, in kids. The animal world has done this. I mean, they basically show that rats who have exposure to a running wheel have differential structure and function in the hippocampus, cerebellum, you know, different areas of the brain. They show differences in angiogenesis, that is the increase in capillaries that bring blood to the brain. Uh, they, show, they show effects in synaptogenesis, how the brain, neuro, how the neurons communicate with one another. And so, you know, we know that, that a running wheel in a rodent's cage brings benefit to, to rodent brain. Um, but what we also know about is that there's other ways as well. Proper nutrition, uh, enriched environments, which in animals is giving them all kinds of toys to play in in their otherwise mundane cage, right? So balls to run in, tubes to run through. These all add to the structure and functional, the structural and functional health of the brain of the rodent. In humans, the probably the closest thing we can link to enriched environments is socioeconomic status. And so, if you think about if you think about kids who grow up in low versus high socioeconomic households, um, you know, low, low SES kids don't have the same ability to engage in the same environments as high SES. I mean, if you're high SES, your family takes nice vacations. You go to good schools, which have enriched, you know, learning environments. Um, you get exposure to sports and music and, you know, books and, and, and what have you. Kids in low SES don't have the money to do so. Their, their worlds are pretty, you know, pretty, uh, what's the word I look for? Pretty sort of, not mundane is the wrong word, but pretty, um, uh, why would I be blank on this word? Of course. Uh, well, the, their, their worlds are pretty constant, right? They don't have a varied, they don't get the ability to vary their exposure to different things. They have the same exposures. And many of those exposures are not as enriching as uh, as what they would get in a high SES household. So that's a long answer, but I hope I, I sort of have been able to, you know, explain it out. Well, yeah, that's a very long answer to a very complex topic. So I think that's uh, totally suits here right now. And you just mentioned here that, as you said, you are very, very interested in physical health and how that actually promotes, how, how brain health promotes physically healthy children, if I like express myself here right now, right? Um, and I, I just, just right now, they're coming few memories back from the Kisa Kalyu seminar from your presentation. And you just said that um, basically prior to 20 year, your brain is still developing overall. So, um, my, my question is actually that before that age, that how do we actually like make sure that brain health gets promoted appropriately? And how do we make sure that kids are getting these like 
benefits in order to be healthy physically? Yeah, so you're basically asking me, you know, how do we how do we keep kids' brains moving in the right direction? Yes, yes, maybe that's that's a better better phrase. Yeah, it, that's a that's a hard thing. I mean, you know, we're we're competing against our we're competing against human beings' um, disposition, right? And so, if you talk to anthropologists who study human movement, they'll tell you that you know, we're not terribly good hunters. I, you know, in that we're not, you know, if you go back to our ancestors, we're not strong. You know, like if you were to compare us to say a, a monkey, right? Even little monkeys are stronger than we are. Uh, we're, we're not terribly fast. If you think about cats and deer and all those things, you know, all we really have are nice big brains that allow us to, um, you know, that for whatever reason under the course of, uh, you know, development and heat stress and things like that have developed to be more complex in other species and allow us to create tools and learn to hunt. But, but, you know, our one strength is that we, we do move quite a bit relative to other species. I and mean, we, we, you know, are able to move multiple miles a day, but having said all of that, our, our inclination is to not really move at all. And so like, if, if you consider the fact that, you know, when you are not, and we, we basically, it's kind of an odd behavior that we, we basically sit around all the time, but then we set out, you know, we set out to exercise. We have these rules, right? Like we, we put on our sneakers, you know, or we, we dress in our, you know, exercise gear and we go out and we perform structured exercise. But the rest of the time, what do we do? We sit around. Why? Because that's what we want to do as people, as a species, right? We, we've basically, we've engineered physical activity out of our lives. So if you, if you think about it, you know, where we used to have to walk and then we, you know, started to ride, I guess, horses. And then we developed cars or bicycles and cars, whatever it is. I, I'm not an engineer. I don't know. Um, you know, we're, you know, at one point we had, you know, we had stairs and that, then we had escalators and now we have elevators and, you know, and so forth. We've basically engineered every opportunity to move from our lives. And so we have to seek out movement. And if you compare that with, you know, generations before us, you know, you can go back a hundred years and a hundred years before that and so forth, we were a much more active species than we are now. And so, um, you know, getting kids to be active in a, in a world that is increasingly sedentary, uh, you know, I, I think is, is very difficult. Um, you know, I, I can give you a good story. And that is, I have a friend who very active guy has a very active son. And every day he'd ride his bike with his son to school. And um, one day the principal called him into his office and said, you know, we want your son to take the bus to school every day. And he said, why? He said, well, because every other kid is on the bus. And quite frankly, when you get to school, the bus drivers are nervous. They're going to hit you guys. Right. And so they're getting pressure to stop being physically active and, you know, get on the bus and do a sedentary behavior. And so, you know, if you were to consider the fact that, you know, you go back two, three generations, like I walked to school when I went to elementary school, I walked every day to school, right? That doesn't exist anymore. It's just, it's for the most, for most of America, that behavior is gone. And, and so, you know, that's, that's one generation, right? 
Um, and so getting kids to be more physically active in, in a world where we've engineered physical activity out of our lives and school districts have, have um, prioritized uh, scholastic topics and de-emphasized sports, music, and arts, it, it's really quite difficult. And, and so in my view, that that's going to have to fall on the parents, right? And, you know, I made it a point when, when my son was born that I was going to make sure he met the physical activity guidelines and beyond every day. Like I took on that role and that responsibility as part of my parenting. Um, I, you know, if I were to have relied on his schools, he didn't have consistent physical education throughout most of his schooling years. So that, you know, I think there's a lot to be done there. I think there's a lot to be, you know, I think things are gonna have to sw change around pretty drastically uh, in order for pedagogists, you know, such as yourselves and others to, to do the job that they're trained to do because they're literally gonna save the health of youth. Thanks for keeping the pressure light off of us. I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, it sounds a lot like kind of the, um, the need, it, it sounds like it's just another good reason for um, kind of early intervention, early promotion of, of just activity. And, you know, when you get into that kind of conversation, uh, especially around sports coaches, I think you, you, you tend to dive into this um, argument of kind of sampling versus specialization for sports as well. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that kind of thing. And if, if there's any research to, to say like whether or not, you know, a variety of activities is, is beneficial or if there's just a few or, or I, I think you understand now what I'm kind of asking, but is there anything around that? Yes. Yeah, so in my area that I'm not really aware of anything. Um, I don't think that my area has matured to the point where we can look at specialization versus sampling on brain and cognition. Um, I think it's a great topic and I hope that future generations of researchers coming behind me, you know, will have enough of a basis in which to jump into that question. I think from a larger sport psychology, kinesiology perspective, you know, it, it's a really hard thing in the sense that, you know, I grew up sampling, you played each sport in the season it was offered and very rarely was a kid engaged in sort of year round activity of the same sport. My son has grown up in a, in a world where he initially sampled, but by the time he was 10 years old, you know, he became a, a pretty strong hockey player and that that's become his world year round. Um, you, you know, clearly you can, you can sample within a sport in the sense that, you know, he weight trains, um, I do have him box because I think it's a good cross uh, sort of cross training mode that's beneficial to hockey. But, you know, it, I, again, I think the world has changed and I don't know that it's changed for the better in this case. I mean, yeah, you know, I think if you focus on the same sport, you're probably going to be better than anyone in, in that sport than anyone who does, you know, sampling. But, you know, you're, you're exposing yourself to injury. So I think there's both pluses and minuses there. Um, one thing I used to do as a coach when I coached hockey for, for about 10 years is, you know, how when like, you know, I, I use pedagogical principles. And, and, and one thing I didn't like to see was kids waiting in line, you know, like you wait in line to start the drill. And so I always had small area games and groups and all the things you guys are probably taught now as well. 
Um, but one thing I did is if I absolutely needed to put kids in a line, um, I did the exact opposite of what most coaches would do, or most coaches want kids in a line. They want them waiting. They want them watching on the, the person in front of them going next and so forth. I told every player on my team, if you're going to have to wait in line, you make sure you have a puck on your stick and you're working on stick handling, you're throwing against the boards, you're working on something else. And so I'm trying to get them to build. It's not really sampling, but I'm trying to get them to build their own skill set within a time frame where we're working on team skill sets, if you know what I mean, or within a drill. So, um, so when it comes to sampling, I think that, you know, unfortunately, it, it's there's less and less sampling the more elite the player gets. Um, but I don't think I think if you include cross training, I think you have the opportunity to bring it back in to play, right? If, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. I think that's something we discuss a lot just privately, but also what is what has been like, has been part of the curriculum here in our school. And it's just, it's just a very like crucial to pick up and like really think about like when you should actually start to specialize on a certain topic. And I think it would be because now we're speaking to you and your researchers in physical activity and brain health. And I think in the future, it would be, as you said as well, it would be great to see if if it's connected with each other and if so, how it's connected and what kind of effects as as it. But uh, well, maybe you will know better than we do how much time it takes until we get to this point. But now we discussed a little bit about the like overall, like um, how do we actually develop a healthy brain and like, but now my next question is that like, how do we actually maintain brain health throughout our life? Like really just, we, we get born, then we get our 20s, there's our peak, as you said, and then how do we maintain it until we are 70, 80, 90, 100? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to, to maintain brain health. Um, I mean, you know, some ways have, you know, it's sort of like, um, like cognitive training, uh, let me start there and say there's a lot of people talk about cognitive training. There's no evidence that cognitive training has any sort of uh, of short or long transfer, meaning that cognitive training is really good for, for specific behaviors that you train. So if you do crossword puzzles every day, you will get better at crossword puzzle, right? But if you, if you do crossword puzzles every day, which is good for brain, and it's good for a healthy brain to do that, uh, you know, it takes reasoning and it takes, you know, knowledge and crystallized knowledge and, you know, the ability to sort of figure things out. I mean, that's great, but it's not going to make you, you know, it's not going to give you better memory. It's not going to give you, you know, better ability to, you know, to, to do other aspects of cognition. Um, and so Though there are those areas, and, and I certainly recommend, you know, keeping your brain active in terms of uh, reading and doing puzzles and engaging in, in environments, listening to lectures, whatever it might be, you know, that allow you to, uh, you know, use that organ. Um, but in a more general sense, with considerable more transfer, you know, obviously exercise is a good one. Um, you, you know, we can we can talk about changes in structure and function and cognition across the lifespan with people who are more physically active, right? 
We know that being more physically active staves off, you know, uh, uh, dementia and Alzheimer's better than other things. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to get it. If you, you know, if you're genetically predisposed to get it, you have a higher likelihood of, ha- you know, of having that happen to you. But we we know that in people who do uh, develop dementia and Alzheimer's disease, that um, if they're physically active or begin physical activity at the earliest possible moment, they're able to hold off symptoms and, and the, the development of that disease, the progression of that disease for a longer period of time. Unfortunately, with most diseases, you eventually do succumb to it, but the, the amount of time you have, you know, is lengthened, right? If you're physically active. Um, beyond physical activity, um, you know, I'd say other things are proper nutrition, right? We, you know, there's good animal models out there. There's starting to be some good human models of, you know, eating more of what I would consider like the Mediterranean diet, as opposed to more of the Western diet, you know, stay away from saturated fat, stay away from salts and sugars and all those sorts of things. And, you know, spend more time eating, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, lutein and, and, and fish oil and, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, uh, high fiber, high, uh, you know, high, uh, was it complex carbohydrates and things like that. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, noxious chemicals, including, you know, drugs and alcohol, they, they deteriorate brain, right? If you work in a, in a fat in a, you know, factory that has noxious chemicals that deteriorates brain. And so, I mean, I think it's about at a higher level, making healthy choices. I don't think there's any secrets here, right? maintain proper diet, maintain proper body mass, right? Proper, proper body composition. You know, uh, we know that, that, uh, excess adiposity is, is bad for, uh, brain and cognition. Right. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think there's obviously limits, you know, but you can have your glass of red wine a day or your beer a day. Um, but you know, drinking, 10 of those a day for a lifetime is not going to be, be a good thing for your brain. Right. Yeah. And you know, this got me thinking and it it may not relate entirely, but is there, is there a moment where, because I think with the way that the society and and just kind of humans are moving, you know, you mentioned it as well, we're just kind of becoming more, um, uh, now I'm blanking on the word. I think we're all taking a turn here, but, um, sedentary, uh, just stationary, right? Like just less movement. Um, and so is there a, is it kind of, is there a point where it's just too late to start, you know, exercising, start eating healthy where it doesn't really have any more impact on your, your brain health, or is that kind of something that you can always start to, to work on and improve? Yeah. So I can't speak to diet. That's not exactly my area, particularly in aging. I have some papers in kids, but, um, when it comes to physical activity, no, it does not appear that there's any age in which you don't derive benefit from it. Uh, and in relative to brain and cognition, you know, we conduct studies in 65 to 80 year olds who show benefits of, you know, being involved in a physical activity intervention after years of being, you know, decades of being sedentary. And by physical activity interventions, I'm talking about a walking intervention, moderate walking for you know three times a week for 45 minutes. We're not talking about, you know, making these people, um, you know, elite athletes, right? Um, but having said that, uh, I believe in early intervention, um, and I don't believe we should wait until we're 65 in order to derive the benefits of being physically active um, for, you know, for brain and cognition. Uh, there's, 
you, you know, there's this idea of, uh, you know, building a healthy brain in childhood. And, and this isn't just for physical activity, but, it, but, you know, there's this idea of building a healthy brain in childhood, you scaffold this healthy brain. And so as life occurs and we get older, um, you know, and we, and our brain begins to decay, it has, you know, it's already at a higher level. So it's decaying. So as it decays, it's still, you're at a higher level, you know, you're not quite getting down as low as quickly. Right. And so there's, there's certainly considerable theories about that. Um, but in my view, since we know that physical activity uh, has some benefit for scholastic performance, then there's no reason why we shouldn't be considering uh, this, you know, this sort of lifestyle, this, this, this intervention in children. Yeah, no, well, I, I think what would be also interesting like, to talk about, like, if we, if we consider like, the development of a person that, and throughout his life or her life, what are the benefits of having a healthy brain? What are the benefits of having a healthy brain? Uh, woof. I mean, you know, really, to have a healthy brain in, benefits every aspect of your life. I mean, everything from scholastic success to vocational job success to, to financial you know, success, to, to marital harmony, to... Um, you know, to the ability to, to work independently, be part of a team. It, it's, you know, it, it really permeates every aspect of our lives, right? Um, you know, if you're going to give me the choice between a healthy brain or a healthy body, I'm taking a healthy brain every day, right? You know, in, in the most, I guess, you know, the most, uh, you know, I don't know how to put this, but I'd say, you know, at the end of the day, my view is, is that the body is there to cart the brain around, right? And, you know, you can have a healthy body and an unhealthy brain and you're going to find yourself in the corner in the dark. Right. But, you know, some of our brightest people, you know, in, in humankind have been, you know, disabled in some form or another yet had healthy brains. And how does that look like on the reverse side? Let's say you're not very physical active and let's say there are things or the circumstances lead that you do not have a healthy brain? How, how, does, how does it look like on the reverse side? Well, I mean, you know, if we're talking about having an unhealthy brain, we're really talking about people who have, um, you know, mental disability, right? So the, in kids, you know, these are autistic, well, autism is its own special category. It can go either direction because there's actually evidence that autistic kids are very, you know, very highly, you know, highly intelligent. Um, but I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, diseases of the brain, uh, be it ADHD, autism. Um, you, know, you can talk about much more serious, uh, you know, mental disabilities, right? Um, you talk about, uh, you know, I don't study disease uh, or, or I'd say uh, diseases very often. Um, but, you know, we're talking about, about children who have an inability to, to be mainstreamed into schools, right? And so not only are they not learning at the same level, uh, you know, they have the ability to learn at the same level, but it limits their social circle, right? And, you know, socialization is a huge part of, of childhood and really our lifespan, right? I mean, people are generally happier when they have rich social networks. Um, and so, you know, not having a healthy brain doesn't just limit our ability to think and, uh, and you know, understand, but also limits our ability to interact. And, you know, and, and so there's a, an effect there that's sort of wide reaching. Um, 
and people who, you know, who developed this in early life, uh, unfortunately have problems, you know, throughout their lives. It doesn't tend to get better. Uh, you know, then you have the people who, who sustain injury, right. You, you know, concussion or, or, you know, even worse, a uh, traumatic brain injury. And then it's life altering for, you know, the remainder of their lives are spent at a lower level of cognitive functioning. Oftentimes it's not just cognition. Uh, it relates to uh, emotional functioning as well. Right. So think about our troops who come back from war, uh, you know, and they've sustained traumatic brain injury. They, they have post-traumatic stress disorder. They have, uh, you know, they have um, uh, problems managing their emotions because of, of that injury. So there's, there's you know, it, it's it's a sort of a rich interconnected, um, you know, issue, I guess. Yeah, you know, this is, it's getting into a really interesting subject here. And, you know, I I, I follow the, the Special Olympics um, a lot and, you know, they do really good work with, I know, I know some of the, the Colorado professional teams do some really good work with the, the Special Olympics and, and um, everything like that. So when, when you're thinking about kind of um, having that kind of unhealthy brain or, you know, a diseased brain, kind of like autism or ADHD or um, like what you mentioned, post-traumatic stress disorder and all of that, is there, is, is there a benefit for physical activity at, in, in those brains? And does that help? um, kind of help in any way, um, to kind of get those people active and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, there is certainly, uh, a good deal. Well, there's some breadth to the study of physical activity in, you know, in disease models of, of brain, but there's not a lot of research out there. Um, and certainly it's an area that needs to be, you know, needs tremendous amount of attention, but you know, just sort of briefly, we've already talked, touched on dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Um, there is some work on on all on um, ADHD. There's some work in a uh, little bit of work on autism. There, uh, you know, there's some work um, in depression and anxiety. Uh, you know, so sort of mental health type areas, um, but not a lot across all of those areas. I mean, I think probably the most is in dementia and Alzheimer's disease but not a lot. And, you know, I think there's a handful of studies in ADHD, even fewer in autism. <clears throat> um, there's a group in Toronto and I, I cannot remember. They're at the hospital for sick kids, sick, hospital for sick children that studies uh, exercise interventions in kids with brain cancer. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely some models out there, but it's an area that needs tremendous amount of attention. Yeah. And I, I like I said, I, I think the, the work that's being done by, by sports organizations is, is, is really good there too. And it, it'll be interesting to see um, the, the research that hopefully more and more comes out um, with that, because I think there's a lot of good work being done already within the sports field, but, you know, kind of um, getting back to, to our topic a little bit more. Um, when we talked with you the other day, you, you mentioned this, um, you mentioned about kind of the effects of acute or chronic um, exercise and, and physical activity on the brain. So, you know, we've talked a lot now about the, the chronic side of exercise and how that um, impacts the brain, but would you speak a little bit about the, the acute effects of effects of exercise on the brain? Sure, Derek. Um, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I've become very interested in this idea of, of acute exercise um, providing, 
uh, an immediate uh, fleeting benefit to, to brain and cognition. Because I think there's a lot of utility of bringing it into the schools and using it uh, as a way to, you know, um, enhance children's ability to learn in scholastic performance and what have you. And, you know, we've for really since 2003, when I published my first paper, so we're, you know, coming up on 20 years, we've had a model of studying uh, how a single dose of exercise uh, benefits brain function and cognition. And in the case of kids, academic performance. Um, generally what we show in children is that uh, 20 minute dose of walking. So, you know, moderate walk for 20 minutes on a treadmill uh, has a beneficial relationship, has a beneficial effect on, um, on uh, brain function that underlies attention uh, and, and, and working memory. Um, we show that it also benefits processing speed, how fast they're able to, to process information when presented in their, in their environment. Um, we see benefits to uh, cognition in terms of executive control. We see uh, better executive functioning along the lines of inhibition, uh, sometimes working memory as well. Um, and we see better scholastic performance in terms of uh, uh, reading and math achievement. Um, having said that, our best guess is it lasts for about an hour, the effect. Certainly, I imagine that's dose dependent. Um, we've played with the dose. We've also played with the types of exercise. Um, we see effects for high intensity interval training as short as nine minutes, as opposed to 20 minutes of walking, similar benefits. Um, we, we've, in young adults, uh, and actually have a paper in kids have looked at uh, extra gaming. So, you know, we fit or was it Xbox connect? Uh, you know, we, we've shown benefits from playing those games as it relates to brain function and cognition. Um, we've looked at strength training a little bit. Um, in kids, we find that there are benefits, but they tend to be a little more limited, not much. Uh, in adults and in older adults, we know that, those, that uh, strength training is, is beneficial as well. Um, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to think if there's any other types of exercise. But in general, you know, what, what, what I see is the ability to shape brain and brain function and cognition for a period of time. And so from a, a school day perspective, you know, it would be nice if kids sort of had a model where they exercised for a period of time, let's say 10 minutes and then had a 50 minute class and then had a 10 minute exercise break and a 50 minute class. And, you know, we're able to, to, use this to assist uh their performance yeah um i have to mention here it it shocked me the first time i went to a school here in finland we do a school tour in our on our first year and every hour on the hour they had a, a 10 minute recess where they just went outside regardless of the temperature and and ran around for 10 minutes and you know my mom is a, a principal at a school and and i grew up in the american school system obviously and I remember we had, I think, maybe two 10 or 15 minute recesses throughout the entire day and just not a whole lot of time for physical activity. Um, so it's, it's really cool to see that kind of cultural difference here and how much kind of benefit that has, I think, for the, the school system over here. Now, um, I mentioned my mom, but she has so much um, or like there's so much research coming out of the Finnish school system and how their kids are impacted by that 10 minutes of exercise every hour and how much that benefits them. So it'll be interesting to see if 
American schools can kind of catch up on the way, but, um, but yeah, um, kind of moving on, um, it, all this information so far that, that we've talked about today, um, you know, how do we use it as, you know, just your kind of everyday coach, how do we use this information to, to promote brain health in our athletes? Yeah. I mean, obviously I think, you know, it's a very good question. I think it depends on what level you're coaching. If you're coaching elite athletes, you know, quite frankly, I think, you know, this is not, not to say it's not important, but it's not your main focus, right? I mean, your main focus is in winning games at that level or, or, you know, performing at your absolute peak. And I'm not saying that we can't help with that, but I mean, it just becomes, it becomes a different level of focus. Um, you know, more rather where the vast majority of athletes sit is in childhood, right? I mean, and I, I think there, you know, I, I think there needs to be a recognition of, of engaging children in a manner that allows them to, to, to be physically active uh, in a way that allows their brains to develop and grow and, and be healthy brains because they ultimately will be better athletes, right? They're, you know, they're, if, if they're able to, um, you know, your best athletes are your most intelligent athletes, right? I mean, they're the ones who they don't, they are not just physically gifted, but they're, they understand at a deeper level, how, you know, how to perform or, you know, not, not just by themselves, but as part of a team. And so, you know, clearly a lot of the things we talk about here in terms of being physically active to, to engender brain health uh, should, should also have repercussions for their ability to think about their, their sports, think about their performance, their athletics, you know, and learn to operate within the rules of those, uh, those contests, um, you know, at a higher level. Right. I, I, you know, let me also say, I think from a coaching perspective, I think, you know, coaches stand to get a similar benefit, right. You know, uh, um, I think the days of being, you know, uh, sort of, that, you know, the stereotypical fat coach, the whistle in his mouth, you know, off to the side, berating his players. Like those days are gone. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, every coach yelled at every kid, right? Nowadays, kids don't want that. You know, they don't care for that. They they want a coach who's going to, you know, treat them like an intelligent human being and, you know, demonstrate and lead by example and whatnot. And I think those are, you know, th those are all qualities that come from, you know, leading a, a healthful lifestyle that, that promotes brain health. I just mentioned a healthful lifestyle that promotes brain health. And I think if I think about the um, job as a coach, I think it's a very, it's a privilege to be a sports coach overall because you get to be physically active so all the time. I mean, even, even if I, if we have school during the day or you have some stuff to do at the evening, at the moment you go to the practices and afterwards you feel refreshed because yeah. you have been on the ice for like one and a half hours. And I think that's, that's a big, big, big privilege in our job that it's, it's so closely connected to being active all the time. And even though sometimes um, our like exercise, which we would like to execute, is not, it's not happening as regular as we would like to, but still it's like, as I said, we go on the ice, then we have off-ice sessions with our athletes, then we're going for walks. And it's not it's not like that we are totally, that we are not active the whole day. And it's not like that we are sitting the whole day in front of the computer. And I think that's something I, I really value about being being a coach and being a hockey coach, because as I said, it's 
just so refreshing just to be on the ice. And we have one final question for you. And um, sure. what, is your, what is your final message to our listeners about physical activity and its impact on brain health? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, I guess based on all that we talked about today, um, you, you know, from my perspective, I think you want to build as much physical activity into your life as possible. I think that th this follows on what you just said, Rick. I mean, you, you know, if I think back to when I was coaching my son's teams, you know, I, I worked a hard day of work. I got up early to work, you know, because I knew I, I had practice with, with his team in the evening. But that didn't mean I was going to skimp on my own practice, my own training. And so, you know, I was building my own physical activity in wherever I could, be it, you know, parking further away in the parking lot or riding my bike to work or, you know, making sure I hit the weight room at lunch, um, you know, or, or I used to go run the stadium stairs at the football stadium. Um, but then when it came time to practice, you know, I, I would I would skate the sprints with the team, you know, like I want. I was out there to be a participant. I'd jump into drills. I'd move around. I made it a point. Okay, you know, I have I have 15 players on my team. I'm going to make sure I talk to each one today individually, meaning that, like, I'm going to jump in on a drill with each one of them and do something. And so I was <clears throat> constantly trying to build as much physical activity into my life because the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, when, you, when you're a middle-aged adult with a huge, you know, workload, not to mention a family life and all the other stresses that go with being an adult, you know, you don't have, a, you don't have the, the luxury of getting up every 10 minutes from your desk to, you know, go for a run and come back or whatever. And so I, I tried to maximize every opportunity I could, um, you know, now that he's older and I don't, you know, I, I hung up my whistle, what, three years ago, I guess, um, four years ago, you know, I have to really make it a point to, you know, get up early and, and do my exercise before my day begins. And, and then, you know, try and, you know, go for a walk later with my wife or do whatever it is in order to uh, try and get a couple of doses a day, but don't feel like I have to get the entire dose all at once. Um, because I think ultimately what we're looking to do is build healthy habits. We're looking to build, uh, you know, something to fall back on because at the end of the day, what we care most, what we should care most about not only being healthy throughout our lives, but, but being healthy and living independently as long into our older adulthood, into our elderly years as possible. And that's not something that you're going to gain if you start at 75. That's something you have to fall back on at 75 when you've been practicing it for a lifetime. And so that's kind of the message I would send is that, you know, the things you do today are, are you know, whether you're six, 16 or 46 are going to come back to help you or hurt you as you get older. And so, you know, um, you only get one brain, you know, and I'm not saying you got to treat it well all the time. I certainly enjoy a beer, um, but you, you should be thinking about it all the time. Yeah. Well, uh, a great place to, to wrap it up and just thank you very much for, for speaking with us today and taking the time and, and, and putting it in such kind of understandable language. So, um, really appreciate it. And we wish you the, the best of luck with the upcoming future and getting back to, to normality here. So yeah, just once again, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate uh, you guys reaching out to me. It's been fun today.
So once again, thank you to Professor Hillman from Northeastern University out of Boston. Um, it was a great conversation. Hope everyone took something away from it. But you know, to to start our reflection here at the end, Rick, I want to start with the, the just overall kind of topic that we talked about today. This this idea of developing good brain health and the impact that physical activity can have on on your brain health in a, in a positive way. And you know, it was really interesting when we were talking about right at the beginning, um, this cognition term that, that's in his field a lot. And, and specifically, they're the executive functions of the brain. And it was really interesting to learn about what actually is going on when your body and your brain decides to do something, decides to, you know, control the puck through the wall instead of passing it to your teammate or anything like that. Like this, the idea of the, the inhibition the working memory and then the cognitive flexibility kind of all working together to make that decision and make that um, determination about what you're going to do, what movement you're going to do is it was really interesting to put a little bit of, you know, brain science, if uh, that's probably a simple term for it, but um, brain science behind this whole idea of decision-making in sports and what actually is going on. So that was a really interesting piece of the conversation for me. And, you know, I really liked how he, he put that the, the better athletes they're finding in the research are more externally focused versus internally focused. And I think there's a lot of research around that for coaches to use that information and, and externally cue their athletes when they give feedback rather than internally cueing their athletes when they give feedback. I think that's a, a big piece of it. And yeah, just overall, that was a really interesting piece of the conversation for me. Yeah, because you mentioned you already the uh, cognitive flexibility and what I took away basically from, from that part of our conversation and it correlates also with your reflection is that we, that we don't multitask as well as we think most here. Uh, Professor Charles Hillman gave in our, in our conversation today the example of driving the car and typing our phone. I think it's the same, for example, if we, if we want to cook something, but at the same time we try to type an email. There are so many things that where we actually think that we multitask, but actually our brain is not really able to, to do it because we can really only pay attention to one, one certain thing. So that's, I think that's something, something very interesting to me. And I think it's just also important that we just become conscious about also from the fact of that, because if we want to improve in one area, it is important that we focus on that area. For example, if we practice shooting pucks, that we only focus on practicing shooting pucks for the next hour and not focusing on, on I don't know, where am I going to do, where, what I'm going to do next, uh, what, where I'm going to park my car, or I don't know, whatever. It may be the examples I provide here are not the best one, but I think everyone understands, understands, uh, understands the message. And um, what I also found very interesting is that, well, you hear that a lot, but it's also it was also good to hear from him as he is, as he is an as he is an expert in that area that prior to twenty that our brain is not developing and um, in the twenties our brain is actually at our peak. And from a coaching perspective, what I take away from that again one more time is that, or actually the question which is arising for me is that, like, what are the things? We need to emphasize opposing our, our opposing our athletes before they reach their peak brain development before they are before they are twenty. I mean, how do we how do we coach them? How do we cue them? What kind of questions do we ask them? How do we how do we do the uh, 
questions progressively? How do we design the questions progressively? How do we make sure that we give them information that help them to develop? But how do we make sure that we do not give them too many information? So I think that's a that's a very interesting piece for me from a coaching perspective. And I just overall, just as he has been saying as well in the conversation, that having a healthy brain helps you just so much in every area of your life. It makes you much more successful academically from an academic perspective, sporting perspective, and so many other things. And also just mental well-being. I think it's a big, big, important piece there. Yeah, for sure. I want to go back to what you were talking about there with the the developing brain and before you're 20. And and I, I think like you're you're spot on. Like it, you really have to think about the things that you're telling your athletes, the things, the environments you're creating, everything like that. Because you know, as Professor Hillman mentions, you know, the executive functions of the brain they're on they're still improving until that you know prefrontal cortex and everything are developed in the twenties. And I think that's something to keep in mind for coaches that you mentioned. It's not that, you know, it, you just can't treat children as many adults, especially from that kind of expectation of being able to do the things that an adult can do. And I think, you know, constantly progressing and constantly adding things, making things more complicated, asking, you know, deeper and deeper questions. That's a, a good way to do it and adding that stuff progressively because that stuff is developing but having the, the right expectations, I think, is, is the, the very important piece there for where the pl player is, where the child is in their development. I think that's, that's the key part that I took away from that part of the conversation is because you can't expect a 14-year-old to be thinking and having the same executive functions as, you know, a 24-year-old or a 26-year-old. I think that's, you know, unreal. those are the unrealistic expectations that coaches can put on players and it's very easy to do that i think if you if you're unaware um of the of just really what we talked about today how the brain develops and you know it was um another piece that i really enjoyed there is you mentioned it right there how how much a healthy brain benefits you you know and, and how much this actually impacts your life and and everything that you do and i think it's really important for for coaches of young athletes to realize how important physical activity is to to benefits in your life. And, um, you know, he talked a lot about scholastic and, and academic success as well as vocational success, but focusing on kids, you know, it, it, physical activity and, and having a healthy brain, it, it helps you learn to be part of, part of a team, cooperate, you know, all of these different things that are life skills that are needed um, when you go into a real job or something in the future. I, I thought that was a, a really big piece of it right like you really have to focus on what's the outcome and you know it was really interesting to to hear the acute effect of exercise so the short-term effects of the exercise on you know focus and attention and everything like that and I was trying to think practically like how can we use this information as coaches right now today and you know I, I was thinking you have video sessions with your U14 U15 team or whatever but you know, they're not paying attention or something like that, then maybe you just go and take a 10 minute walk and then you come back and, and you know, that, that benefit is, is there for that next hour um, in most cases. So I think that's something that we can take away right away and use those kind of short-term effects of exercise to our, to our benefit in our coaching right now. 
but yeah, I, I mean, just, just a really interesting piece of the conversation. I can probably go into this for a while, but it's, it was a great conversation. So. Yeah. I think also additionally, what I found also very interesting, what I took away from the conversation or it's just that when he was talking about the, how active we actually know about this. And he was saying that 100 years ago, a few hundred years ago, we were much more active species. Meanwhile, we are not so physical active anymore than we used to be. I mean, like he gave such a really, really interesting example with, with that. I don't, I don't remember 100% if it, if it was his son or if it was from a friend's son who was taking the, who was taking the bike to the classes, to the school was uh, riding the bike to the classes and um then the then the director of the school was was asking that why 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 is your son taking the the bicycle if everyone else is taking the bus it just it just shows that how how less physical activity in our today's society exists i mean it's just here it's just so nice for example here in finland on our campus everywhere where you want to go you should probably walk because first of all you get outside it's very nice and secondly it's it's just just it's just i i don't even know how to put it in words it's just like it's it's like it's very interesting to me that really that it's there's really the perception of our society that we should take the bus in comparison to the bike or that we should take the bus in comparison to walk if if the university or school is only 15 or 20 minutes away i still remember when i was a when i was a kid and i went to elementary school my 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 school used to be walking time 10 to 15 minutes away and i walked always there it was just normal every every kid in my every every everyone in my class walked to their school even though they lived 20 minutes away so there was it's it's very interesting how this how this area has evolved in our life and i want to what I also want to touch on, and I, I think it's important that we differentiate here because now we had on our show Dean Kilaris, who spoke about physical literacy, and now we had on our show um, Professor Charles Hillman, and who speaks about physical activity and brain health. And I think it is important that we different make a uh, make a differentiate a little bit their work because what. Professor Charles Hillman is basically researching, to put it in simple words, is that how physical activities such as taking a walk and stuff like that can benefit our brain health. So there's the, there's a um, there's a difference in the definition between physical literacy for Dean Kolaris and physical health for Professor Charles Hillman, from my understanding. Yeah, of course. I think um, you know it's 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 different aspects of research for sure. But the, the kind of benefits are, are the same, right? Like being physically literate is going to improve your brain health because being physically literate is just finding ways to move, right? It's finding ways to be physically active or, or actively participate, as Dean put it. And I, I think, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're looking at different things, but the, the outcome for the individuals is, is fairly similar, right? They just want healthier individuals. And, and Dean's, I feel like, is maybe more holistically and and Charles is more focused on on the brain health of the individual. So it's it's really interesting now that we've had both of them on to kind of compare and and contrast a little bit there. So you know I, I think the the last piece of 
as I'll mention is just kind of what you mentioned there. You know, I saw a tweet the other day that said um, the only time Americans are, are truly happy with where they live is when they're in college because that's the only time they live in walkable communities. And I, I think that's um, very um, prevalent to our conversation today, right? Because, you know, you just mentioned our camp campus and how easy it is to walk around here. But, you know, I remember going back to school in the States, walking to classes and everything. It, it was great. You know, you just got outside and got a little exercise and, and it helps you. You walk into your class for the next 50 minutes and you're a little bit more focus and everything like that. So um, it's a, it's a prevalent tweet now. I think it was meant to be a joke, but it was, um, it was quite funny and, and now it kind of relates. So um, yeah, I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up for today's episode with Professor Charles Hillman from Northeastern University. Uh, one more time, thanks to him for taking the time and chatting with us today. Um, we wish him the, the best of luck with his future, with his, um, uh, his, center at Northeastern University. And um, yeah, just make sure you connect with the show on social media um, at the Coaches Road. And we'll also link Charles Hillman's um, center at Northeastern down in below, and you can follow them and their work on social media. Um, but for now, just enjoy your week and we will see you next time on the Coaches Road podcast. Mm -hmm.